0: Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm back in town. I've been uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee for the last few days and then uh, on the road again here soon to Charlotte, North Carolina. If you guys want to tune into any of my speaking schedule or watch any of these messages live, follow my Facebook, check out my uh, website so you can see where I'm speaking live. We are trying to wake up the church, uh, win back the soul of the country, and that begins with the institution that was responsible for founding this country, which is the church and those who worship Uh, A fetus, a god-man who entered human history in a womb as a zygote. Who else to end abortion but the institution that worships a prenatal deity? But uh, we wanted to dive in today into some questions to give you guys arrows in your quiver, some pro-life firepower to be able to engage in this important political and cultural moment. Um, Because... The divide in our country has only gotten more stark, hasn't it? It's only gotten worse, it's only heating up, And those who hold to Judeo-Christian beliefs, frankly, just rational, common sense, true scientific beliefs, not the science of the religion of secular progressivism, which is just a veneer for their bigotry. But true science are increasingly being labeled bigots, homophobes, women-haters, whatever new word they come up with. And it's time to get onto the offense. And I know you often feel like you're on the defensive for holding pro-life beliefs, don't you? Especially if your family or workplace is filled with woke leftists. So it's time to join the offense. We need to get on the offense more so than any other time uh, because the type of legislation being discussed and proposed from our institutions, from our Senate, is the most radical we've ever seen. i talked to you about the Equality Act, right? which would functionally destroy any type of political difference between a man and a woman. And we've gone through the consequences of that for society and actually for the pre-born, right, and for the pro-life movement as well. Well, if we don't get onto the offense now, we may not be able to, but that starts in local communities. That starts with you in conversations with your friends, family members, and coworkers, because the left cares so little about their reputation amongst common sense Americans. The only reputation they care about preserving is their reputation amongst other woke leftists and the reputation that cancel culture holds of them. They don't care what you think about them, and it's time that we stop caring what they think about us. And we often care too much that we keep our mouths shut. Well, I'm going to give you everything you need today to open your mouth to do so all the time. Listen, the pro-choice position is based on fantasies. And because it's based on fantasies and an alternate reality, individuals like yourself can ask well-formulated questions that cut through pro-choice ideology, fantasy, and bigotry and expose the moral bankruptcy of their position. We can ask good pointed questions in the Socratic method to bring reality back to the surface and hopefully your friend, family member, or co-worker will embrace reality once again as their long-lost friend. We're going to examine 10 questions plus two bonus ones that you can ask pro-choice advocates in this episode. Grab your notepad, buckle up. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. (laughs) Unaborted Thank you guys for tuning into the show today. Listen, would you leave us a rating and review? It really helps us. As long as I'm able to fly under the radar on these technocrat platforms... I'm going to do so and hopefully continue to build that, reach more people at this very important moment. And so your little five stars there in review, it actually helps a lot because it'll show up increasingly on other related content and categories of podcasts and it'll get more exposure and more people will listen to it. Listen, the Socratic method is known as sort of the art of asking good questions. And the goal of the Socratic method, of course, going back to Socrates, this master question asker, has been the pursuit of truth. The goal is not dominance. We don't wanna ask pointed persuasive questions in order to hit our ideological opponents over the head with truth, which I know sometimes can be fun to do, but rather to offer truth to them on a golden platter and hope that they select that from the menu. We need to follow the common master where he leads and the common master is truth because truth does tend to be self-evident. This is the great conservative and pro-life consolation is that reality always reasserts itself in the end. We saw that with the Holocaust, we saw that with slavery, um, and luckily, as a country, we, we turned from the moral evil of slavery because we recognized the reality, the self-evident truth that all human beings are created equal. Right? We, we returned to those first premises that this republic was built upon, but we've turned away from those premises when we allowed abortion 48 years ago in 1973. And so, asking really pointed questions can get to the self-evident nature of truth that woke leftists and much of our countrymen work very hard to suppress, right? You actually have to work overtime to suppress and bury truth because it tends to look you in the face. It tends to be self-evident. And so leftism largely just involves sticking your head in the sand In denying the existence of an external reality. And much much of that happens on our university campuses, where by the time these individuals graduate, there's so much sand in their mouth from having their head buried in the sand for four years that they can't even recognize, much less articulate a coherent vision of the good life. And such a vision has always started with natural rights, natural principles which is what our founders recognized, and from there, the trickle-down explanation of how our legislative system recognizes and protects natural rights. And so I want to utilize this Socratic method today with you in order to give you these types of of, uh, arrows and questions in your quiver to use in arguments and debates over abortion. These questions are intended to show this that your critic or the person you're having a debate or conversation with must pay too high a price to continue holding their view. The philosophical term for this is called cognitive dissonance. You want to create cognitive dissonance in the minds of those you're talking with that through your questions and through your winsomeness, they're going to have to stand there and scratch their head and go, uh, because whatever answer they give, they're going to sort of, look like a moral monster, if I may. And I think that each of these questions will lead down that road, not because you want to make your opponent look like a moral monster, but because they're admitting that their position is that. And you're simply putting a stone in their shoe and forcing them to reconcile with maybe unacknowledged or undetected premises that they've absorbed. Most people don't know exactly why they believe what they believe. They tend to work out the logic of their position in real life, but are unable to offer an explanation of their actual position themselves. And this is why C.S. Lewis said that the most dangerous ideas in a society are not the ones being argued for, they're the ones being assumed. And you know what happens when you assume, right? So we need to create cognitive dissonance. Here's the first question, and it deals with the nature and reality of double homicide when a woman's pregnant. Now you're probably familiar with these, right? People ask me these all the time after I give a talk on abortion and I don't include this example. They're like, did you know about double homicide? And so it's the most recurring example used in conversations on abortion, but no less important because of it. So let's phrase the question in the context of a real-life story, okay? So we'll, we'll give you this question. We'll go ahead and make the questions available verbatim, maybe in a download for Patreon listeners or something like that, so that you can actually hold this as a PDF on your phone. But in 2002, in California, Scott Peterson murdered his pregnant wife, Lacey, and was charged with two counts of murder and is on death row. Now, here's the question. Why was it not okay for Scott Peterson to kill his unborn child, but would have been perfectly fine if Lacey wanted to? Okay. Let me let me say that again. Pro-choicer. Why wasn't it okay for Scott Peterson to kill his unborn child, but it would have been perfectly fine had his wife Lacey wanted to at any point in the pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all? Now. The pro-choicer might often respond by saying, well, that's different because Lacey wanted that unborn child, and Scott Peterson violated Lacey's desires for that child by killing that child without her consent. Now, of course, this sort of begs the question, uh, did the child ever consent to being killed? And of course, you can't ask that question, right, because then you're forced to... to discuss the unborn child as a unique individual separate entity the very thing that the pro-choice movement doesn't want you to do But but let's keep playing down the philosophical consequences of their answer to this question They might argue that it was wrong They'll probably acknowledge that it was wrong for Scott Peterson to kill his unborn child They probably support the two murder charge right the double homicide charge on Scott Peterson for killing his wife Lacey and his own unborn child But then they'll say, but had Lacey wanted to, it would have been okay. So this gets to the very nasty historical examples of defining those that you want to exterminate as unwanted because they would say, well, Lacey wanted the child. That's why she was still pregnant with the child. I think the baby was in the second, late second trimester when Scott Peterson killed his wife and unborn child. So the child could have survived outside the womb. But they'll say, Scott Peterson didn't want the child but Lacey did want the child and it's her bodily autonomy rights and so it would have it's wrong for Scott Peterson to kill the baby but it's not wrong for Lacey to do so so it the value of the child is dependent on the psychological state of the mother but not in the psychological state of the father so it would have always been wrong for Scott Peterson to do so but dependent on how Lacey Peterson feels about her, her fetus, then she can just define the child out of existence based off of whether she wants it or not. So what's the standard for human value, right? Because obviously the motivations to kill that child from his or her mother or father's side has no bearing on the child itself, the child herself, that child either does or does not have dignity. Right, The child in Lacey Peterson's womb either had no moral worth whatsoever or had infinite moral worth. There's no in-between. If it's not a person or a human being, then removing it from the womb is no different than removing a polyp. But if it is a human being and it is a person, then it has ines- inestimable, infinital, in- infinity worth, right? Far more so than any other form of life in this world, plants, animals, whatever. So how could the status of the child be purely dependent on the thoughts in their parents' minds? Scott Peterson's thinking, I don't want this child, I'm gonna kill her. Lacey's thinking, I do want this child so it has value. So because Lacey was thinking that, and Scott Peterson was thinking that, it was wrong for Scott Peterson to do it. I mean, obviously this makes no sense whatsoever. What if it went the other way around, by the way, right? What if those thoughts about the child were flipped in the parents' minds? What if Lacey Peterson was thinking, I don't want this child, and Scott Peterson was thinking, I do want this child, then I guess by the pro-choicers' own application of their moral logic, then that child should have a right to life, right? Because Scott Peterson's thoughts about wanting the child would conflict with Lacey Peterson's thoughts of not wanting the child, so we should always err on the side of caution by choosing life and letting Scott Peterson advocate for the life of his child." Oh wait, no court has ever allowed a man legal rights to protect his unborn child that he created consensually with another woman because they've been deemed to have no parental rights as long as that child is located six inches away in his or her mother's womb. Okay, so obviously our values, human beings, cannot be decided on whether others want us or not and the pro-choicer would never apply this post-natally outside the womb, but they will apply it in the womb, so they've simply revealed their pro-choice bigotry. But this type of question, right, it forces them to reconcile with the irreconcilable nature of their position because it is self-evident that our value is either entirely objective, meaning no one can take it away from us, or entirely subjective. It can't be both at the same time. That child can't have rights if Lacey wants it and then not if Lacey doesn't want it. Here's the second question for the pro-choicer, and this has to deal with the issue of gender side, right? So, I mean, killing individuals because of their gender. This is, I mean, about as sexist as you could get, right? So here's the context, and here's the question. Many women in China and India are deliberately having ultrasonography examinations for the purpose of identifying and then eliminating unwanted female fetuses. So, so they're getting ultrasounds to see, am I pregnant with a boy or a girl? Oh, it's a girl. Abort it. They're, they're getting the ultrasound to determine whether they're going to get an abortion or not, dependent on the gender of the child. So, ProChoicer, since you claim to be an advocate of women's rights and have acknowledged that the unborn is a human being, do you have any problem with this? Do you have any problem with aborting unborn fetuses after their mothers learn that they're females? But if they learn that they're males, they will keep that child Ah, the patriarchy wins again because most pro choice individuals will never speak out against gender side. But if they do, then they're saying the unborn child has some level of value, right? Because it's not wrong to abort unborn children because they're females, it's wrong to abort unborn children because they're human beings. The gender is irrelevant. To their intrinsic dignity and value. So essentially, you're asking your pro choice friend, are you a consistent feminist or are you a fake feminist? (laughs) Right? Because what's feminism? I mean, at the very most basic definition, it would be the belief that women are equally valuable to men and deserve the same natural rights respected and protected. Now, I'm not talking about second or third wave feminism, right? Now, then you end up actually actually defending sexism, right? Third wave feminism actually says, we need to discriminate against men because of the decades of the patriarchy in order to uh, correct for historical wrongs, just like the anti-racist, quote unquote, end up justifying racism. Radical feminism ends up justifying sexism. I'm talking about first wave basic feminism. Women are equally valuable to men because they're human beings. So if women have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, then they have that worth simply because they're a human being. And if women have been historically discriminated against, then surely murdering women because they're women would be the worst form of sexism, yeah? Well, that's exactly what happens in gender side abortions. In many countries like China and India, this is still happening. Oh, I'm pregnant with a girl, abort it. Oh, I'm pregnant with a boy, yay, let's have a party. That's obviously gender side. A consistent feminist would, of course, have to say that because women are valuable, they're valuable because of a human nature and should not be targeted because of their sex. Here's a third question for you guys. How does the unborn differ from us? And I'm going to dive into that question more specifically, but that's what we're trying to get at in this third question, is force the pro-choicer to answer the question, why the unborn child's differences from the born person are decisive. What is it about the differences between the unborn and the born they cause you to sanction killing the unborn, but not the born, okay? So that's sort of the context. That's what we want to get at because that's ultimately the assumption of pro-choice arguments is they're saying because the child is different from us in the womb and then they'll give us what what their woke differences are, therefore they're not a person and we can kill them. Okay, so here's the question. What's the fundamental difference between the unborn human it has human parents, human life begins at the moment of conception, that's uncontested in the scientific evidence. What's the fundamental difference between the unborn human and the newborn human that leads you to believe that women should have the choice and right to end the life of their unborn offspring, but not of their newborn offspring? <laughs> right. In other words, what's the difference between the unborn and the newborn that causes you to sanction the slaughter of the former, but not the latter? And the, they're going to begin pointing out developmental differences between the fetus and the infant. The problem is, and here's the problem here's what will give you the ability to navigate this question correctly in a, in a debate. The unborn child differs from us as born people in the same ways we differ from one another. As born people right in other words any difference between the unborn and the infant is a difference between the infant and the toddler the toddler and the teenager we all differ from one another it just happens to come in in matters of degree right my wife is smaller than me so there's a degree of size difference but human nature doesn't come in varying degrees human nature is objective and is decided when you become human, the moment of conception. Our IQ, our gender, our skin color, our athleticism, our musical ability, all of these things come in varying degrees. A human nature does not. And so the problem with what difference they give you between the unborn and the infant to justify killing the unborn is that whatever difference they select is also a difference between the infant and the toddler. And so you could apply the dis- those discriminatory differences to justify killing anyone. Well, what would be just a couple examples of this? Well, they'll say, well, the unborn child is not conscious, right? They're not conscious or maybe they're not self-aware. They're not aware of themselves as a unique individual but we know from the scientific evidence that infants are not self-aware until months after birth. So can we kill infants, right? I'm applying that same difference to the infant and then the pro-chaser goes, ew, don't apply my same exact ideas outside of the womb. That doesn't make me feel good. Well, then maybe you should abandon your pro-abortion bigotry rather than complaining about my philosophical strategy of reductio ad absurdum. Reductio ad absurdum. Reduce your opponent's argument to absurdity, absurdum. Take those ideas, apply them in another moral context. If you don't like the application of your ideas in another moral context, you should abandon your ideas. Okay, that's question three. Question four has to deal with Down syndrome and abortion. And I've covered this on the show before. You're aware of this. It gets very disturbing, very disgusting, um, very much a favor to the eugenicists and the eugenics movement. A 2007 New York Times article, so not that long ago, reported that the majority of unborn children, up to ninety percent, according to some studies, the majority of unborn children diagnosed with Down syndrome through genetic testing are aborted. This is called the amniocentesis test. By the way, sometimes it's wrong. I mean students all the time that I speak to who say, my mother was told that I had Down syndrome in the womb after getting the amniocentesis test. She rejected abortion and I don't have Down syndrome. Now, obviously, it still would have been wrong to abort those babies, even if they did have Down syndrome. That's eugenics. But oftentimes, it's wrong, just so you know that. But again, up to 90%, according to some studies, of children diagnosed with Down syndrome in the womb are aborted. So here's a question. Hey, pro-choicer, do you have any problem with this, given its similarity with the eugenics movement? The slow and deliberate elimination of those our society deems unfit to live. Ah, yes, the language of Nazis unfit to live. Do you know what else they called them? Undesirables. You know what else they called them? Useless eaters, Untermensch, subhuman. And the Nazis firstly went after the physically and mentally deficient, right? and then the trade unionists, and then the Jews, and then the famous Martin Niemöller quote is, then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up for me. So this has always been the pursuit of the eugenics movement, is the perfection of the human race, and their religion is Darwinism or secular humanism, the belief that there are no objective rights that flow from a a rights giver or a law giver Uh, And therefore, human beings are no more intrinsically valuable than animals. And so it's just kind of survival of the fittest, to use Charles Darwin's language, right? And in fact, we do a favor to society by getting rid of those who are not as fit, in order to just have fit Germans, as Nazis, Nazis believed, or fit Americans, as Margaret Sanger believed. And if you do that in the womb, however, the pro abortion movement screams reproductive justice. Well, there's nothing just about that because human value is not instrumental, it's intrinsic. What do those terms mean? Instrumental means the instrumental good that you are to others. If you're simply an instrument, right, then you can be used... And if you're no longer useful, you can be discarded. So is human value instrumental or is it intrinsic? Intrinsic means part of who you are. When I say a human being has intrinsic dignity, value, and worth, what I mean is this. It's in virtue of being a human being to have dignity. It's just in virtue of being human, meaning you actually can't separate the dignity and value of a human being from themselves. They have it in virtue of being human. Now, some, you know, some people in America say, pro well, pro-choicers say, well, that's not self-evident. That's just your view of the human being. No, it was actually our founder's view of the human being. And that, that belief system is what guaranteed the very freedoms you now take for granted. This idea that human beings have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth or natural rights that flow from a human nature, rights that other forms of life are not entitled to because they're not human. Whether you think that's self-evident or not, you woke pro-choicer, that was the the worldview, the Judeo-Christian belief system that founded this country. And, and And it has given birth to the rights and privileges and entitlements you now enjoy without acknowledging where they come from. But the problem with with accepting the view that human life is instrumental, such that we could say, kill, kill the babies with Down syndrome, right? Because they're not an instrumental good to society. They're actually a drag on society, to use the Nazi's language. The problem with accepting the instrumental view of the human person, you guys, is that who then gets to decide, okay, the collection or bowl of functions you must meet to not be murdered by the elite political class, right? In other words, if it's not intrinsic and you don't have value simply because you're a homo sapient, you're a human being, if human nature can't ground your rights and a human nature is the only thing we have in common, then what will ground your rights, right? Well, whatever functions and capacities the elite class arbitrarily pulls out of their butt in order to discriminate against those they already wanted to mistreat or murder. So for Nazis, it was skin color, oh, I'm sorry, for races, it was skin color and IQ. For Nazis, it was religion, right? And it was um, physical attributes that they used to um, disgustingly discriminate against Jews. And for the unborn, it's their size, their level of development, the fact that they're in a womb, and the fact that they're dependent on their mothers, well, if you can kill the unborn child for being smaller, less developed, and more dependent, why not kill born people who are smaller, less developed, and more dependent? And then what happens when the elite class creates new categories that the woke leftists never thought would be used against them to then discriminate against them? This is why we say the left, in the end, always eats their own, because they continue to expand the number of uh, intersectional boxes you must meet in order to be in the in crowd. And if you're in the out crowd, then you will be cast into the other utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The criteria list for personhood is always changing. That's the problem with not grounding it in the only thing we have in common, a human nature. But listen, if they say, I have no problem with eugenic abortions, they look like a moral monster. And if they say, I do have a problem with it, then they're forced to answer the question, the eugenic abortions, they're forced to answer the question, does human value then only come if you have Down syndrome? (laughs) Like what? That would be strange, right? If if we say, do you have any problem with eugenic abortions and killing babies diagnosed with Down syndrome once they have Down syndrome, do you have any problem with that given its similarity to the eugenics movement? They say, yeah, I definitely have a problem with that then you should be opposed to all abortions because human value doesn't come from the fact that you have down syndrome it comes from the fact that you're a human being it's just particularly more nasty when you're pursuing those abortions for discriminatory reasons okay fifth question what about pain capable unborn babies in other words what about babies for whom abortion is a horrifically painful procedure so Dr. William R. White, a director of neurosurgery and brain research at Case Western University, testified before the Constitution Subcommittee on June 15, 1995, and he said, "Quote the fetus within this time frame of gestation, 20 weeks and beyond." is fully capable of experiencing pain. Without a doubt, a partial birth abortion is a dreadfully painful experience for any infant. Now, we know by 18 to 20 weeks, and he, he's saying 20 weeks here, the unborn child can feel pain to the same degree as you and I. So if you dismember them through abortion, it will be as painful for them as if I dismembered you right now as an adult and I tore your limbs off, okay? now. Uh, Dr. Maureen Kondik, who we've talked about on the show before, we'll probably have her on eventually. Um, she is a also, I believe, in the science of neurobiology and has done significant research on fetal pain. And the most recent scientific evidence that's pretty much uncontested at this point now actually is that by eight weeks, the unborn child can respond to some form of stimuli, meaning they can feel something as early as seven or eight weeks. But it's uncontested that now between 18 and 20 weeks, the child can feel the full range of human pain. Okay, so that's the science of fetal pain. Here's the question for the pro-choicer. Should unborn babies scheduled for abortion at this point be given the benefit of anesthesia to ease the pain of dismemberment? right? Because abortions do happen after 20 weeks. So, hey, pro-choicer, question for you. For babies who are aborted after 18 weeks when they can feel the full range of human pain, would you support legislation that gave them painkillers before you killed them? Now, saying no, if they say no, that sounds barbaric, right? As you're explicitly defending painful child abuse. If they say, no, I want that baby to feel every little freaking bit of their limb getting torn off their body, then they look like a moral monster. Again, our, our goal is not to make pro-choicers look like moral monsters. Our goal is to get them to admit that they are through their own language as they work out the logic of their positions through being forced to defend them, to bring those assumed premises to the surface. But saying, yes, yes, I would support giving unborn babies painkillers before their abortion is an admission that the unborn child can feel pain or else they just say, no, I don't support painkillers for babies being killed because they don't feel anything. So if they say yes, they're admitting that the unborn child can feel some pain, but that it's okay to kill people as long as they can't feel it. <laughs> wow, how would you like me to apply that to you, huh? Or, or how about your grandpa on life support in a coma? Huh? Or how about your grandpa when he's sleeping? How about I just give him some painkillers and, and murder him? Right? As, by the way, as many very radical leftists would like to do in this country, once you get past a certain age, they don't think that any ailment should be treated, especially not through um, Social Security or through government um, uh, Medicaid or Medicare. They don't want those funds being used to keep people alive past a certain age. Um, Yeah, if you're gonna apply that to unborn babies, why not apply that postnatally and they all say no. Okay, so we're going to get to some more questions here in just a second. But if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. This is a crowdfunding platform. In case you're listening to the show for the first time you haven't heard me pitch this, it's just how you help us. Um, Build the show, increase our production value, number of episodes, and type of content we create in order to reach more people. You know, there's the ongoing private video chat small group, there is the ability to select a question within topic you want me to respond to, a private Facebook group, a lot of other fun um, perks that you'll get for supporting the show as well as a book club that we'll be doing soon that we'll add in one of the tiers or add an additional tier so that really helps us It's an important time to get this information out as long as i can exist on these platforms your help your support helps us reach more people and we reward you with a little perk in return as a thank you for supporting unaborted with seth gruber we'll be right back with a whole lot more Welcome back to this show, guys. So let's get to question six. We're going to get through 10 now um, total, and then we'll get to some bonus ones uh, for patrons. So um, remember that, and uh, another thank you for supporting the show. So this sixth question has to do with destructive embryonic cell research, embryonic stem cell research. Always includes the mistreatment and murder of the preborn. Unlike adult stem cells, you cannot get the unborn child's stem cells while keeping them alive. They must be killed and aborted in order to get their um, stem cells. So here's the context, and then here's the question for the pro choicer. ABC News uh, once ran this story, I believe it was back in like 1995. I actually have the uh, Picture of the article if anyone questions this story. ABC News once ran a story about a woman whose father was suffering from Parkinson's disease. Okay? She heard that brain cells from aborted babies could be used to treat the disease, to treat Parkinson's, right? So this was her hope. So she sought to conceive a child for the express purpose of aborting it four months later in order to harvest its body parts to be used to treat her ailing father. (laughs) I mean, this is gnarly stuff. Imagine having sex and being like, oh please, I I really hope I get pregnant so that I can develop the child to the point where its organs can then be harvested for my ailing father. This is what she did. Okay, pro-choicer, simple question. Do you see anything wrong with this? Anything at all? Like, were you repulsed by that at all? Is theres there, any portion of what she did that could be called objectively wrong, even by the pro-choice movement. If they say yes, that that's wrong, it's wrong to express, expressly create children in order to murder them and harvest their body parts so we can extend our own lives. If she says, yes, that is wrong, well, that answer only makes sense if the unborn child has some level of moral worth. Some moral worth, I'm sorry, not not a level of moral worth. You either have moral worth or you don't. You're either a person or you're not. You're either a human being or you're not. And if you're not part of the species human beings, you don't have objective value, as much as PETA would like to tell you otherwise, right? This is why even PETA advocates don't stand outside of In N Out when you're driving through the drive-through with your triple cheeseburger and calling you a murderer, right? We understand human beings, there is something about being human that makes us significantly more valuable than any other form of life. And so if they say, yes, it is objectively wrong or something's wrong with that to create human beings in order to murder them and harvest their organs to help our ailing parents, then they're admitting the child has moral worth. Because if the child doesn't have moral worth, it doesn't matter why you kill them. It doesn't matter. It's no different than removing a polyp. But if they say, no, I have no problem with that at all, then this is an admission that it's permissible to kill others if doing so can help ourselves or benefit you or someone else. Oh, wait, wait, do you mean the uh, arguments that uh, the Nazis made at the Nuremberg trials? Yes, of course, right? We were experimenting on them, either while they were still alive or after we murdered them. But don't worry, we were doing it in order to help perfect the Aryan race. We were getting very helpful scientific information out of that to help extend our own lives. And some of those people's lives that we were helping extend and care for were German citizens who were ailing. See, we don't, we don't want to murder all ailing people, uh, just Jews who will treat like trash in order to help the German race. Well, uh, born people say that when they say we can kill unborn people in order to extend born people's lives who have born privilege because their mother didn't abort them in the womb. Uh, what could be more entitled than that? So there is no basis on which to oppose the actions of this woman if you support legal abortion. Because in so doing, you're admitting, you're working out the logic of your position that unborn children have no intrinsic dignity or rights that we're required to protect. And if that's true, then the reasons you abort them and the reasons you kill them don't matter. It doesn't matter if you're doing it in order to grab their brain cells to help your ailing father or whether you're doing it to fit into your prom dress or whether you're doing it to finish school or your career or whether you're doing it because you think maybe it'd be fun to try an abortion I'll try that it doesn't matter why you kill your child through an abortion if the child is not a human being not a person and has no intrinsic dignity and rights but the fact that most pro-choicers would respond to that story and that question with repulsion with repugnance ew, gosh that's sick means that you have succeeded in breeding reality a little bit closer to the surface. Because as soon as you acknowledge that that's wrong and repulsive, you're acknowledging that the unborn child has some level of dignity and worth. And now you've inverted their leftist utopia, upside-down kingdom back on the right side and shown them reality as a long-lost friend that they kicked out of their lives when they enrolled at UC Berkeley for the lesbian dance theory major. Okay, so that's why we have to frame the questions in this way. The goal is not dominance. The goal is the pursuit of truth and bringing truth onto the golden platter of natural law for them to feast at. Okay, question seven has to do with the ironic nature of saving prematurely-born babies, right? You know this, that if a mother's baby is born prematurely, the, do- the hospital will work heroically to save that baby. But a baby at that same level of development can be murdered through abortion, and the culture will cheer her as a great defender of women's rights. Okay, so here is the story from CBS News reported in May of 2019. Oh, look at that. Uh, exactly two years ago, Okay. Baby Sabie was the name of the baby. Baby Sabi, And I, I think I actually covered this on the show at the time. Um, baby Sabie was born in December 2018 at 23 weeks. 23 weeks. Now, I believe the earliest baby to have been born and survived is 21 weeks and zero days, which is just freaking crazy, right? That's wild. I mean, that means we've, we've essentially cut the gestational development in half. Full gestation is 40 weeks. If we're now almost saving babies at 20 weeks, that's wild. And that's beautiful. It's totally amazing. But at the time, this baby was born at 23 weeks, weighing just 8.6 ounces, which is the weight of an apple, and was released home. Okay, the baby went home in May of 2019, okay? So, the San Diego Hospital where this happened worked heroically to save baby Sabie's life. And baby Sabie would have been there for December, January, February, March, April, May for like six months. I mean, that's a long stay in the neonatal unit. They worked heroically to save baby Sabies (laughs) say that five times life and succeeded. So here's the question. Why should it be wrong to kill baby Sabie at 23 weeks but okay to kill a baby in utero at 28 weeks. And in many states, abortion is legal up until that point. And and in states where it's not, as I've talked to you about before in the show, a woman only need to apply the Supreme Court's broad definition of the word health in order to get a late-term abortion. Doe versus Bolton, the companion case to Roe versus Wade, said that abortion would be allowed in the second or third trimester if failure to get that late-term abortion endangered the mother's life or health. Well they defined health to include familial health, <laughs> family health, psychological health, emotional health, physical health, so you could essentially say, I got in a fight with my husband, I'm really stressed out, I need a third trimester abortion. And in some areas of the country, you've actually had hospitals where in one wing, in one wing of the hospital, they were working heroically in a neonatal unit to, to keep a child alive who was born at 22, 23, 24 weeks, and in the other wing of that same hospital were performing an abortion on the child at 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 weeks old. Um, If that doesn't cause cognitive dissonance in your mind, um, it might be because you majored in demonology. It might be because you actually have a demon living in you. Uh, And this is why, of course, on this show, we talk about Christianity, the Christian worldview. I believe that there are spiritual principalities. I believe that there are demons literally in the facilities of Planned Parenthood and praying on the shoulders of women as they walk in, whispering in lies, the first lie from the garden in Genesis 3, which says, ye shall be as gods. And if we're gods, and we get to decide who lives and who dies because we're entitled to what every god is entitled to, eternal life. And if we have to kill babies to extend or improve our own lives, so freaking be it. But that has happened and continues to happen in some areas of this country. So, here's the question. Does your location really matter to your right to life? Does your location really matter to your right to life? Baby Saby, 22, 23 weeks old, boop, pops out of the birth canal, right? I guess magical personhood conferring fairy dust was was, uh, stuck to the, the side of the uterus and the birth canal, and they absorbed that personhood conferring fairy dust when they came out of the birth canal, so they had rights. But the child in the other wing of the hospital, who was being aborted at 25 weeks, didn't absorb that personhood conferring fairy dust because their mother didn't want them. So they, they traveled through a, a similar birth canal and changed locations, but their mother was just exercising her right to choose. Excuse me while I say WTF. How could your location actually have any bearing on your right to life? Um, and framing it that way, again, forces the pro-choicer to acknowledge the moral bankruptcy of their logic. Okay, question eight, this has to do with the disgusting practice of storing the bodies of children you've aborted, uh, like collector's items, okay? And I talked about this on the show back at the time, for those of you who have been um, listeners since the genesis, recently deceased abortionist Ulrich Klopfer. And now, if you're involved in the, in the pro life movement significantly, you'll remember this name because even, I believe, even CBS and frickin' CNN and some of these places couldn't avoid having a sm- small portion of coverage on the story. Ulrich Klopfer was found to have kept over, listen, over 2,200 babies that he had aborted. 2,200. 2,200 babies that he had aborted from the early 2000s. When he died, they found these children stored in glass containers in his freaking garage, and his wife had to find them as they were going through his stuff. They were stored in plastic bags and preserved with a biological material. Okay, simple question. Is there anything wrong with that? Does that disturb you at all? Does that seem perverted? Is that wrong? Now, again, if the child has no more dignity than a polyp, we might think it was weird if you kind of like kept your polyp, right? Or maybe the polyp of the woman you removed it from. We might be like, it's kind of weird, bro. It's kind of weird. But I don't think that people would be throwing up over it. I don't think that it would be as um, repulsive as keeping the bodies of human children in jars that you killed. And philosopher Carl um, Strauss, coined a very helpful term for this called the wisdom of repugnance. That there is wisdom in your initial gut response to something. And if that gut response is repulsion, if it's, ew, you sicko, <laughs> there's probably wisdom in that sort of reflex response, right? And most people responded with that sort of, sort of gut reaction to this story. And there is wisdom in that response. Because if it's wrong to mistreat the bodies of dead babies, surely it must be wrong to mistreat the bodies of alive babies through abortion. (laughs) Right? If you're repulsed by the incorrect, immoral, unjustified mistreatment of babies already dead, but you don't think it's wrong to mistreat the bodies of those same children before they're murdered, I've got nothing for you. You're a degenerate. You need help. And you should never be a babysitter, you sicko. But most people, even pro-choicers, were like, that's kind of sick. Ulrich Klopfer is a sick freak, but had no problem with the fact that he had killed 2,200 of these children and others that he didn't keep. By the time when the story broke, there were mothers all around the country who, who kind of came forward and were like, Oh, good Lord, I, Ulrich Klopfer performed an abortion on me in the early 2000s. I wonder if he has one of my children. Yeah, I know. That's freaking sick to think about, right? But a couple of these women told their stories, I think to LifeSite News and other places, because, of course, CNN would never have them on. And they were, like, having to revisit the trauma of what they went through because many of them had become pro-life and regretted killing their child. And now they're wondering if one of their tr- children is, is in a glass container in Ulrich Klopfer's freaking garage. Um, hmm, I have one thing to say. There are consequences to the culture of death. And those would be one of the consequences. And sometimes reality reasserts itself and slaps you in the face, and you have to go, WTF, what am I supporting? And, and if you support mistreating the bodies of dead aborted children, you have no problem with that. You need to check your soul. If you do have a problem with it, it means eternity is written on the heart of man. And if it's wrong to mistreat the bodies of dead babies, it's because it's more wrong to mistreat the bodies of alive babies. If the bodies of aborted babies should be respected, why not the bodies of alive babies? Mainly by preventing them from being aborted in the first place. My gosh. Okay, question nine has to do with late-term abortions. Is there anything wrong with nine-month abortions while mother's dilating and decides to get an abortion instead? And most people won't answer this question. If you ask them, do you support late-term abortions? Because they don't want to have to really, frankly, picture the reality of nine month abortions. Entertaining that is like really disgusting because many of these women have actually given birth to children and many of the fathers who support abortion have been there to watch their child come out of the vagina. And so then they're like, oh yeah, I know what a nine month baby looks like because namely I-, 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 I held it right after it was born. And now you're asking me if I support killing that child right before it came out. Well, obviously it looked the same. Please don't ask me that question. But I know if I say that that's wrong, you'll tell me, well, then what's wrong with killing it at eight months and 15 days and eight months and 10 days and eight months and blah, 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 right? Because the pro-choicer doesn't want to allow the pro-lifer to plant moral premises in their mind. Because if they plant moral premises in their mind, they might grow good ideas, namely you'll have to abandon your pro-abortion bigotry. Okay, so in January of 2019, as you guys remember, New York legalized abortion through the day of freaking birth. And Doe versus Bolton makes it clear, as I said, that a woman can get an abortion during any point in the pregnancy if it's an issue of physical, emotional, psychological, familial health. All these factors relate to health. So you can use the term health, define it so broadly, you can drive a Mack truck through it and use it to justify nine month abortion. So here's the question, pro-choicer, do you believe a woman should have the moral and legal right to get an abortion at nine months the day before her due date? No, how about this? My wife was 10 days past her due date with our first child. Should a woman be able to get an abortion 10 days past her due date if she's still pregnant and hasn't gone into labor? How about she has gone into labor and she's dilating, but the child hasn't been born yet? Can she change her mind and request an abortion? And if she did, would you support it? Would you support it as reproductive justice and reproductive health care? If they say yes, they look like a moral monster. According to Gallup polling from 2019, 13% 13 of the American public supports abortion in the third trimester. Not very many, right? I mean, it should be none at all. But only 13% of the American public supports abortions in that late trimester. And many of those individuals will then oppose abortion uh, right as the child's dilating or right after it's born because that's then infanticide. So if they say yes, they look like a moral monster. And most pro-choice individuals actually don't support that. If the answer is no, no, I don't believe a woman should have the moral and legal right to get an abortion in the ninth month, then the immediate question is, why not? Why not? Oh, my gosh, you sicko. I thought you were an advocate of women's rights and reproductive health care and allowing mothers to make their own family decisions about if and when to have children, even if they have to kill children they already created, because as long as they're in the womb, they're not persons. That's what you told me. That's what the Supreme Court told me that as long as the child's in the womb, they're not a person to use the Supreme Court's language. The same bigotry that they committed during slavery, that not all humans are persons, and that they repeated in 1973. So if you don't believe a woman should be able to get a nine-month abortion, then why not? Does the nine-month unborn baby have moral worth? Right? Okay, so what about the eight-month, 29-day-old baby? What if it happens to be one of those months where there's, 30 days in the month or 31 days, eight months, 31 day old child. That one probably doesn't have moral worth, huh? It's probably like right after midnight, like at at like 12 a.m. or 1201 a.m. in the ninth month in the very beginning. Oh, my gosh, the child has moral worth now. I don't like nine month abortions. I mean, obviously, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's completely untenable because nothing magical happens at a certain developmental stage of the human being. You either have a human nature or you don't. And the only way to have a human nature is to uh, mm, be a human. And when do we become human? The moment of conception. Are nine-month abortions wrong? Question 10, are there any problems with abortion being used as a tool of racial bigotry? What if you want less black people and you use abortion to accomplish that goal, okay? So Planned Parenthood has repeatedly and excitedly accepted donations earmarked specifically for aborting black babies by callers who stated, quote, there are too many blacks, end quote, quote, I don't want my kids to face struggles with affirmative action, end quote, and quote, the less black people, the better. Okay? Now, for any sick leftists who are going to watch this show and try to use it to take me out of context, this is what Planned Parenthood has said. Um, in live-action undercover investigative journalists who have called Planned Parenthood and said they would like specifically to make a donation to abort a black baby and have then followed up with that language, right? So, here's the question. Is there anything wrong with using abortion as a tool of racism, fulfilling the founder of Planned Parenthood's dream, Margaret Sanger, who wanted to use birth control and then later abortion as a tool of racism. She was also a eugenicist and hobnobbed with the founders of the American Eugenics Society. And of those that she deemed unfit to live, she included blacks. Now, if they say no, there's nothing wrong with this. But like, can you imagine like asking Black Lives Matter, asking Patrice Colleur of, Black, of, of By Large Mansions, I'm sorry, Black Lives Matter, asking her if she would have any problem with someone saying, I love abortion, and I try to defend it because I'm a white supremacist and I want less black people. And, and I place my clinics specifically targeted in, in uh, uh, minority communities, namely black communities, where I can put my clinics within walking distance of, of, of black women. And then I tweet out on Twitter, I put, I put did you know for black women who are pregnant, it's, always, it's safer to get an abortion than to give birth to your child. And that's not because I say so, that's because there's a tweet from Planned Parenthood that literally says, did you know if you're a black woman in America, it's statistically safer to get an abortion than to give birth. Now, that, that stat is complete bunk and BS, and it can't be defended, and I've gone through the problems with it before. But imagine, you, imagine telling that to black women. Every time you get pregnant, black women, uh, you should actually always get an abortion, because the stats say that abortion is always safer than childbirth. And if you care about yourself and your family, you should. I mean, you should care about your own health. You don't want to die from childbirth, so always get an abortion. And so then I, I just put out those tweets and then I, I placed my clinics in black neighborhoods because I, I want to get as many black people in there as possible to abort their children, control the black birth rate and population like, my, like the founder of Planned Parenthood wanted to do um, because I don't want to face problems with affirmative action. <laughs> Can you imagine if someone like admitted that and then asked Black Lives Matter, which launched a political action organization with the former freaking president of Planned Parenthood, and then asked them, do you have any problem with that? Now, if they say no, then they are a racist by definition or they are encouraging and greenlighting a systemic racism, I guess. What's more systematically oppressive than planned parenthood today? which kills over 300,000 babies every single year. If they say, yes, I have a problem with that, which they kind of have to be forced to, especially in today's political environment, right? Like if you, if you don't say, yes, I have a problem with abortions being used as a tool of racial bigotry, um, you probably will be canceled by the left, even though the left loves abortion. So if they, their answer is yes, then the, that answer only makes sense if the unborn is a person with moral worth, just like the child with Down syndrome, just like gender side abortions. Opposing those things only makes sense if the child has moral worth. Because if it's not a person, which is what Planned Parenthood and the culture of death tells you, then it doesn't matter why you kill them. Because they never had rights anyways. So who cares if you're a racist who wants to use abortion to control the black population? Because remember, whatever's in the womb is not a person. And that term human and person were ripped apart once again in 1973 by our Supreme Court. Everyone says that they have a problem with this because reality tends to be self-evident and it will always reassert itself in the end and slap you in the face. Reality is the greatest enemy of ideology because ideology turns its face against reality anytime reality compromises the system of belief that the left has set up. If anything compromises that system of, of belief, it must be filtered out. You must close your ears you must cover your eyes, be like the monkey, and pre- pretend, to, ag- pretend to acknowledge that there's no such thing as an objective reality. Everything is just words, 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 are words we can use to just create reality. It doesn't matter that there are some truths that hold across time and space. According to the left, everything's relative, so you can use words to create reality, such as that not all humans are persons being human is not enough to ground your rights, so it doesn't matter that the unborn is a human, it's not a person, we can kill them. Oh, but what if you're doing it because you want less black people? What if you're doing it because they're disabled? What if you're doing it because they're a woman in the womb? What if you're doing it because they have Down syndrome? Then the left kind of goes for a second, they might go, ooh, ah, I don't, I'm a little bit repulsed by that. Well, then maybe you should abandon ideology in the favor of reality. Friends, that's what these questions are intended to do So, listen to this again. Memorize these 10 questions. Get them down on your notepad. We'll provide this for the patrons. We'll have these uh, in word-for-word questions so that you can use. And then in a little bit, we're going to do quick two more questions for patrons of the show. So, if you want to get two more and make it 12 to really have your quiver full of philosophical ninja warriors ninja arrows to defend the pre-born, then become a patron of the show at any level. Obviously, the the greater, the more it enables us to do. But if you head over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and you become a patron of the show at any tier, at any amount, uh, once I get that notification there, then I will post the bonus questions for patrons only on Patreon so you can view them. But thank you guys for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube, Spotify. Give the show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to SethGruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, see my speaking schedule if you want to come hear me speak live and local, or to book me for an event. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.